Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Adam Hoskins, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Come on, let's listen close. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Momentum is about movement. It's taking a step into godly purpose, investing ourselves into the kingdom, taking the momentary to eternity. It's something to be gained. It's a turning motion to shift, but always shifting forward. It's transforming. Our story is unfolding into a new yet familiar adventure. It's like holding a memento while recognizing the hand of the artist in all the new things in unlikely places. Saying what God's done before will happen again, but it won't look like what we're used to. It's a surprising plan only God could create. It feels like revival. It feels like anticipation. And it looks like His invitation. And we accept. So let us hang on with holy expectation and know that God is calling us to greater things. We just have to say yes. Let me say this, welcome back to the book of Acts. If you're part of our community, you know where we are. If you're not, we're so glad you're joining us. Whether you're in a physical location, you're part of our virtual site, or you're watching somewhere else in the world, welcome today. Okay, today's conversation is going to be, I think, significant, important, and maybe a little mind-bending and yet making us really biblical. And again, whether you're a seeker, skeptic, brand new Christian, long-term Christian, spiritual but not religious, or deeply religious uh, but not Christian, (laughs) uh, this conversation matters for every single one of us. I've shared this story before, let me do it again. Years ago when I was in youth group, actually in this church a long time ago in a different building, uh, there was a young man who started attending our youth group and um, he was uh, East Asian in background. Probably, I think I remember, I think he was from India. Uh, he was a Hindu by faith. And um, I remember him coming to youth group and checking out Christianity and us praying and talking. And then just one day he disappeared. Never came back, never saw him again, and he was gone. And if I can recall the story right, I ran into him, I think near the end of high school or maybe during like university years. I said, hey, didn't you used to come to this youth group at Steeple Hill? And he's like, oh yeah, weren't you part? Yeah, back and forth. I said, you just disappeared one day. What happened to you? And he said, well, do you really want to know? And I'm like, yeah, I actually really want to know. I was thinking in my head, you know, back then we were a pretty like Caucasian youth group and did we make some mistakes culturally? And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, look, he said, uh, I think it was his mom or grandma. I think it was his mom. He said, listen, my mom got really sick and um, she was really unwell. So I asked Jesus to heal her and he didn't. So then I went back to my Hindu gods and asked them to heal my mom and my mom got better. So obviously the gods of my ancestors are either more real or have more power than your God. So I'm sticking with them. See, today's conversation is um, it's about this, basically. Where in the world does power come from? 
what's the role of the power of the Holy Spirit, what's the role of miracles and evangelism, but also how do we evaluate if and where the power is coming from when it's used. Now, what I love about our city, I've talked about this so many times, is the whole world is here. And the truth is, for us who have lived around the world or are from other parts of the world, the vast majority of people who become Christians become Christians first through experience and secondarily through uh, rational ideals. Now, we need both. I'm going to talk about that today. We need word and deed, power and gospel proclamation, hand and glove. But how and why and when is the question. So that's why this next part of Acts is so critically important, especially for us who live in the most multicultural, one of the most pluralistic, one of the most global cities on earth. So we're going to enter back into the book of Acts. And we're not only going to be exposed to our need for the power of the Holy Spirit to win large parts of the city, but we're also going to see how this can go wrong very quickly, even though it's done right. So this is where we enter back. We're back in Acts uh, 13. And what's just taken place is uh, Saul and Barnabas have been told by the Holy Spirit to leave Antioch, that very first multicultural revivalistic experience. And of course, no one would want to leave and the Holy Spirit says you need to go. Remember Acts 13 too, when they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them, uh, they were sent off. Or and sent he he sent them off. So so after worship and after listening and after prompting and after planning, leaders placed their hands on them. And this is not giving them some new spiritual gift, by the way. This is not giving them more anointing or no power. It's just affirming we are sending you out under the power and will of the Holy Spirit. So the two of them, verse four, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed then to Cyprus. So another amazing Holy Spirit move begins. Luke shows us again and again, it's the Holy Spirit who sends them out. It's the Holy Spirit from the Father through the Son that ordains. The Holy Spirit is literally moving Jesus's body to do Jesus's bidding. And just like Jesus, when he's sent out the first time, the Holy Spirit sends Saul and Barnabas right into a war zone, spiritually. So they land on Cyprus. It's a land occupied in history by the Greeks, the Phoenicians, later annexed by Rome. And during the time of Augustus, this area suddenly is overseen by uh, what they call a proconsul. And this person that we're about to encounter in this text is about to become a follower of Jesus. It says this in verse 5, When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their helper. So they first go to the east coast of the island, and they went to the Jewish house of worship, houses of worship. And in other words, it's like we would say church today. And Paul, by the way, if you haven't caught this, follows this pattern almost everywhere he goes. He starts with those that have the most in common, the most bridge built, bridges that are already built. He, he actually is trying to find people that share a similar worldview. That is why we always remind ourselves in this church that Christianity is not a separate religion from Judaism. It's actually the Jewish faith fulfilled because Jesus is the King of Jews, the Messiah, and the Son of God. This pattern is even sort of embedded in Paul's view in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. It has the power of God for anyone, or, or power of God for salvation for anyone who believes, first for Jews, then for non-Jews. Okay. So they speak about Jesus the Messiah in the synagogues. Then it says in verse 6, they traveled uh, through the whole island until they came to Phaos. 
There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So they now travel west to the provincial government seat of power, and another pattern emerges here. Every single time God's good news is spoken and miracles are done in Jesus' name in a new territory, with a new ethnic group, in a new environment, there is, we've talked about this before, an overt turf war. There is a demonic encounter to abort, thwart, delay, or destroy God's work. The Bible teaches, even after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Satan is the God of this world and owns this world. And every time the kingdom of God shows up, first with Jesus, now through his people, the kingdom of darkness is being pushed back. There's a clash of kingdoms. So in the book of Acts, the demonic used both Christians and non-Christians to thwart the kingdom of God. Chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter 8, in Samaria, right? You've got Simon the sorcerer here in chapter 13, later in 16, later in 19. In other words, every single time the gospel comes to a new place, a new family, a new ethnic group, a new environment, there is a clash. That's why, side note, many of you that are first-generation Christians, you're the first Christian in your family, you experience more apathy, more hostility, more attack than other people because you are actually the turf war in your own family or community. Well, this coming turf war, this clash is very important, Sanctus, so lean in. Luke and we today need to distinguish between the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the demonic. And we should note that Luke never doubts the ability or gifts of those empowered by evil to him and, of course, to here at Sanctus. The issue is not, is that weird? Because remember, weird is cultural. So weird is not the standard of right and wrong. The presence of gifts or power is actually not the standard of right, of wrong, right or wrong. The question is, what is the source of what's happening? The demonic in Luke's day, in our day, and throughout the scriptures, almost always do the same acts as those empowered by the Holy Spirit. They even do good things like heal people, like I just shared, so the family remains in bondage and controlled. They look the same, but their purposes are different. The ability seems the same, but actually it's evil in intent. The scary fact is the spirit of Antichrist looks like, acts like, and does the same things as Jesus. But the source is not Jesus, nor is it the spirit of Jesus. The goal is to deceive, destroy, not to save, not to bring peace, and never to give glory to God the Father. That is why, as Christians, we must absolutely know our Bible so well. But also, that is why we must have all the spiritual gifts in operation in a church community, like the gift of discernment, to test what's real as power is being displayed in front of us. Well, the clash comes and it's outlined like this. It's pretty epic. Bar-Jesus was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Elimus, the sorcerer, that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Now, Sergius Paulus, very interesting guy. We know from historical sources he's part of a very famous political family, like a political dynasty family, highly esteemed in the first and second centuries in the area of politics. He was known, his family was known at the highest courts in Rome. Right beside this proconsul is a guy named Bargesus. Now, he's what we'd call a syncretistic Jew. He, he mixed the Jewish faith with the occult, 
Iliumist, by the way, is a Hebrew word meaning occultic worker or sorcerer. So this guy is with the proconsul in his court because the proconsul believed that this man had the real ability to break the bonds of fate or give power to him. So if this guy could give him power, this guy could help him with political situations with other worldly power. In other words, Sergius Paulus is hedging his bets spiritually, financially, logistically, etc. Here's the deeper story, though. The kingdom of darkness, knowing that the good news was coming, already has a key player in this place to resist the gospel in Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus is going to be there to say no. The goal is to confuse and confront Jesus' people. And by the way, this is why this is so confusing. Bar-Jesus means son of salvation. No, no mistake, his name itself fills the room with confusion and wonder. So uh, Sergius Paulus is going to hear from two Jew gr groups of Jewish people. And the question is, well, which Jesus is right? Which Jesus is Savior? Jesus from Nazareth, who claims to be the Son of God, or Bar-Jesus, who's the Son of Salvation? And again, he's like, well, you're all Jewish, right? So it's the same thing. Is it? So you've got human agenda, demonic agenda, and God's agenda all in the room at the same time. And Bar-Jesus does what he can to stop his boss from listing, let alone embracing the Christian faith, another spiritual source, leader, worldview, because if he does, he, he loses his job. But it's deeper than that. It's not just him afraid for his job. There is something within Bar-Jesus, a spirit or spirits that give Bar-Jesus the ungodly abilities. And so they are opposing the Holy Spirit found in Saul and Barnabas. The fight's not between Bar-Jesus, Saul, and Barnabas. The fight's between the demonic spirits in Bar-Jesus and the Spirit of God in them. That is Saul and Barnabas. It's a clash of kingdoms. It's a turf war. God, Satan, good, evil, true gifts, false gifts. One person plugged into one source, the other two plugged into another source. Now ask yourself the question, why the fight here and why the fight now? Well, this is why this happens here. In the book of Acts, this is the very first presentation of the good news of Jesus to the Roman world in a formal way in a Roman political situation on Roman soil. This is literally new ground. This person has access to the highest courts in Rome. He has, he has access to the system. So of course there's going to be resistance to stop it from spreading. Well, Saul, huh, verse 9, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Iliumus and said, you are a child of the devil. Whoa. You're an enemy of everything that's right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop providing, perverting the right ways of God? So Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, using the spiritual gift of discernment, exposes what this man truly is and actually is really confronting who inspires him and empowers him. He asked this piercing question, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of God? Now those words might feel a little familiar to you and they probably should. If you do Christmas at all at Christmas, there's this very famous thing sung a lot in the West called Handel's Messiah. And in Handel's Messiah, there are words about John the Baptist and Jesus taken from Isaiah 40. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain hill made low, the crooked straight, the rough places plain. This is the huge difference between good, evil, peace, chaos, level, unlevel, straight, crooked. 
Paul now again using the spiritual gift of discernment and also soon miracles. And remember, Bar-Jesus has common theological understanding because he's a Jew. Paul says, you're actually a child of the devil. You are false. Your power is real, but it is ultimately false. And you are not here by mistake. The devil has placed you here to stop, thwart, confuse, pervert, to overcome the good news of Jesus so it cannot take a foothold in the Roman world. Well, we are here by Yahweh's command. We are sent by his spirit and Jesus has given us this power. And then it happens, verse 11. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind and for a time you will be able, you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over Bar-Jesus. He groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. I guarantee him, he was like, whoa, in the room. Again, the battle is not between Paul and Bar-Jesus. The battle is between the Holy Spirit and the spirits in Bar-Jesus. And there's no doubt who wins. Now, God blinds Bar-Jesus for a time. This is so important, especially for you who struggle with the Christian faith or haven't thought it through deeply. When God disciplines humans, there is always a silver lining of grace and mercy to allow them to lead, to lead them and allow them to come to repentance and salvation. Adam and Eve in the garden, have you thought about it? When we sinned, he kicks us out of the garden, not just because he's angry and disappointed. He doesn't want us eating the tree of life, so we're eternally damned. At Babel, we say to God, we're not going to obey you. We're going to build a tower into the heavens and we don't need you. What does he do? He confuses our languages to give us opportunity to come back. He could have destroyed us. He had the right to destroy us. In the flood, he saves humanity through Noah. A rainbow is given. Jonah runs away. He's thrown overboard. He sends this large fish. Even Paul, this is, I love this part of the story. Paul, that just cursed Bar-Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, a gift that's miracles, I guarantee you Paul was thinking about his own story. A few years earlier, he had been fighting God, he hated Jesus, and when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was blind for three days. So here's the brilliance, the beauty, the power of this. Paul is now used by Jesus to supernaturally blind bar Jesus only for a moment. And one huge reason why it's not permanent is God is giving Bar-Jesus a warning. He's giving him space to become like Paul, who ended up giving up everything he trusted in and becoming a follower of Jesus. Some of you listening to me are Bar-Jesus at this very moment. More on that later. Well, when the proconsul, very, if you're taking notes, Verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed for he was amazed at the miracle, the blinding, no, the teaching about the Lord. Underline teaching. Here we see the power of both and, the biblical rejection of either or in evangelism. First, the proconsul saw what happened, the power encounter. The miraculous event was the door being opened, the trigger, the taste, the affirmation that what Paul was saying was true. It directed him, but it's the act of preaching. It's the foundation of truth that he believes upon. Power must be clarified by the gospel. Without clarification, it's just power. Power has to be clarified by the gospel. Without it, without that clarification, 
And we're going to see this next. It's just power. So again, Jesus through his people overcome the presence of evil, brings another to himself, a high-ranking Roman official who's amazingly, did you catch the scandal? Loved by two Orthodox Jews who should hate him because he represents the system that oppresses and dominates their home country. The love of God has so transformed them that they actually love every person because they see they're made in the image of God and they're meant to spend eternity with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and us. Well, we don't know what happened to Bar-Jesus, but the confusion does not end there. We move from the chambers of Roman power to sort of like the everyday religious spirituality of many people in another location. They next go to this Roman colony called Lystra. It's a place of great wealth. And by the way, they have to go there because actually there's a small period of persecution. And then it reads like this in Acts 14.6. But when they found out about it, they fled to the cities of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding country. Where, okay, very important, where they continued to preach the gospel. Now here's the difference between where they were and where they are now. In this place, there is no Jewish gathering sites. There's no synagogues, there's no house of prayer, there's no prayer gatherings. So they begin to share the good news with all sorts of people who aren't Jewish, with all sorts of religious backgrounds. So let me slow down so we all comprehend this and then we see why it matters. Everyone hearing this preaching about Jesus was what we call a religious pagan. They followed the Greek or Roman gods, they either believed in fate or they were part of secret religious cults, the list went on and on. Now, the goal for Paul and Barnabas is actually to show this group that actually there's only one God and the only way you find him is through Jesus. This is the strategy Paul, Barnabas, others use when talking to religious pagans, non-monotheists. You can see this actually when Paul's reflecting on people who came out of this lifestyle in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He says, they tell me about how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God, one God, and to wait for his son from heaven who raised him from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from God's coming wrath. So again and again with pagans, with no Jewish background or understanding, it's a two-step moment. First, there's only one true living God. Everything else you're connecting to, idols, inventions, mythology, or demons, abandon it. And by the way, how do you find the true living God that's made everything we see? Oh, through Jesus, who's, who's reve who reveals God. So, okay, we're in Lystra. The gospel is being repeated again. All these things you're trusting in those idols, they have no power. Encounter the true living God. Meet him through Jesus. And this is being preached. And while they're in Lystra, as this is happening, this amazing moment focuses down on one man. In Lystra, verse 8, there was a man... There sat a man who was lame. He had been this way from birth. He had never walked. Again, slow. This isn't fiction. This is a real person that existed. His whole life had been deeply affected by a really tough disability. Some of you listening to me right now, you know what that's like. You see people all the time, or you hear people all the time, taking for granted things you would give everything to experience just once. This man never walked. 
And remember, this isn't 2024 sitting in Canada or wherever you're from. There's no wheelchairs. There's no disability insurance. There's no building regulations to make life easier. There's no hospital system like we presume there is today. There's nothing. So this man is living in never-ended, ended, ending brokenness. He's listening to Paul preach. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit fills that environment. And this incredible thing takes place. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw he had faith to be healed, and called him out and said, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and he began to walk. So we go from blinding people in literal supernatural mist in the room to people who have never walked running around. Jesus had done this very act. Uh, Peter and John had done this very act for a man at the temple. But see, this is different. Not in a Jewish context. Not near the Jewish temple. Not, not with common religious understanding. Uh, there's no bridges here. No bridges. We, we've talked about this already, but let me do it again. It's not about the miracle, but the source of the miracle. Where did the power come from? Now, Paul and Barnabas go, well, of course. It's the Holy Spirit who points to Jesus, who reveals the Father, the creator of all. But the onlookers interpret God's work very differently, actually wrongly. And let me just say this. Hey, Sanctus, this happens all the time in the world. It's happened to a lot of us, and we might not even know it. So this is what Paul and Barnabas don't know. In this very town, there is a very famous story put into a poem by a guy named Ovid. Ovid records that Jupiter and Mercury, the Roman Latin names, by the way, for Zeus and Hermes, came to the town right beside Lystra. They disguised themselves as human beings, and they visit a thousand homes to see if anyone would welcome them and provide hospitality. They finally get to an old couple's home named Bacchus and Philemon. This old couple welcomes them, and then the two gods reveal themselves and their true nature, and reward this old couple. But then the legend says, in poem form, they go back to all the other homes, 999 or whatever it was, and they punish and terribly assault, basically, all these people for their lack of hospitality. So watch the confusion unfold. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their own language, the gods have come down in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he's the chief speaker. See, in almost every culture on earth, the supernatural is normal, okay, and expected. And so, of course, they declare worship. But interestingly, they're connecting this to what happened before. The mythology, the legend. But this time, they're like, we're not making that mistake again. We're not going to anger the gods again. I can't even believe they showed up next door again. So, oh my goodness, we must show hospitality this time. So they call Barnabas Zeus. Why? Because he's older and probably looked more distinguished. And Paul they call Hermes because Hermes was the god of interpretation and the messenger of the gods. Now, Paul and Barnabas don't speak this local dialect. They have no clue what's going on. Then the, really th the, the thing happens that really bothers them. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gate because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. 
When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting. Can you imagine the moment? Paul, Barnabas, their faces turn angry, sad, confused. Then they get it, then revulsion. This is terrible. This has to stop right now. The crowd then would start freaking out. They're in shark, shock because they're watching what they think is literally Zeus and Hermes yelling and screaming at them, tearing their clothes. Paul and Barnabas run into the crowd because they want to say, physically demonstrating, we're just human like you are. I'm sure the people are like, oh my goodness, they're going to come kill us now because they know the legend. I'm sure the priest was like, the crowd was like, oh my goodness, what have we done to offend the gods? We, we, we've done something terrible. The gods are going to curse us or kill us. And then Paul says, hey, because they all probably speak Greek, right? Friends, why are you doing this? We're just humans too, like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, God let all the nations go their own way, yet God has not left himself without testimony. God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops and season. He provides you with plenty of food, fills your hearts with joy. But here's what Paul is saying. God no longer is allowing you to go your own way. The time of ignorance is over. I mean, this is actually what Paul also talked about in Romans 1. It's what theologians call general revelation. Uh, Romans 1.20, right? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So people are without excuse. Hey, everyone, he says, it's plain. There's nothing hidden. This isn't a secret. You don't have to be a great intellect. You don't need to be Einstein or some person with five PhDs to know there's a God. He's shown himself. The act in creation was definite and powerful and unequivocal, and the knowledge of God is knowable. We, we can't know everything about God, but we can know there's a creator, a God of order. He must be artistic. He must be moral. From the fine-tuning of the universe uh, to every culture sharing a moral code to our desire always to worship something, God's invisible qualities are shown. Observation says yes. Logic says yes. Morality says yes. Order says yes. Spiritual, spiritual intuition says yes. Fine-tuning says yes. Like, it's all yes. It's like I said to my son years ago when I walked into this room, and he's like, how do you know if there's a God? I said, point to anything. He says, that chair. I said, okay, where did that chair come from? He said, well, someone had to make it. I said, point to something else. We went through the room, thing after thing, and he kept saying, well, that person made that, or Ikea made that, or... I was like, exactly. And I said, and the universe? He said, well, he said, ah, right. Well, even with all of that, verse 18, they had, they had difficulty uh, keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. They were terrified and also excited. Okay, these two stories, why are they important? Well, in both cases, the gospel confronts personal sin, worldliness in multiple forms, and the demonic. The kingdom of darkness, realizing power over so many people might be lost, does not attempt to directly confront Paul and Barnabas, like Legion did with Jesus. This is a much more subtle approach. It's syncretism. It's the mixing of truth and error that leads to loss. And by the way, Canadian culture is, is racked through with syncretism. The amount of churches in Canada 
that when you really listen to what they're saying, it's Christianity plus a little Buddhism, Christianity plus a little moralism. Like, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Okay, why does this matter to us? Well, number one, we have to keep expecting and being aware of how these things interplay. In our world, it is full of people with all sorts of faith backgrounds and religious and spiritual experiences. And the vast majority of the world will expect spiritual things to happen. What they will say to us is, okay, so you think you know God. Show me his work. So here's how this maps out. We are called to witness, preach, and pray for the miraculous to open the door at the same time. There is imbalance in certain churches. Many charismatic churches focus only on the miraculous side, uh, and they start saying, well, it's basically the avenue. But they forget signs only point and affirm to what's coming. The message has to be spoken and submitted to. Others, types of churches many of us grew up in, including myself, reject all forms of the miraculous or deeply skeptical. They say it's dangerous, it's not necessary. All you need to do is preach the Bible more, give the gospel more. You need nothing else. But this stops the pattern we see in Jesus, the book of Acts, in Paul's life, in Peter's writing, should I go on? <laughs> so in other words, the miraculous should not be stopped because of fear, or theology, or unbelief, or past pain, or misuse, or possible abuse. It does not, by the way, replace preaching. It's the handmaiden that prepares people from multiple backgrounds, Western and non-Western, for the good news. I love what Ajith Fernando, who uh, was a, is uh, a, a key leader within Sri Lanka, who wrote these words. When non-Christians, listen please, so important. Some of you are this. When non-Christians are confronted with the message of Jesus, most will have at first a moral or cultural block to even considering it seriously. It is a costly message because it involves renouncing one's past life and embracing Christ as Lord. So, unless there's some compelling evidence that will move the hearts of people, people will probably not regard it as worthy of consideration. God often uses actions through Christians, deeds of kindness, the miraculous, and blameless lives to incline the heart of people favorably towards the gospel. Once the heart is open, it's possible for the will to orient itself to accept the gospel people will be able to regard its teaching for what it's worth without the earlier prejudice or fear. They will realize it's something worth committing their life to. Acts 13 rightly emphasizes deed and word are important elements in evangelism. Though ultimately people put their trust in Christ based on the words they hear, often the trigger to opening them is actually the miraculous or the deed. So in other words, that's why in this church, we are uh, unflinching, uncompromising on the, on the necessity of spiritual gifts. That's why we say we expect and fight for more power gifts. Well, we do word gifts. Well, we do love gifts. We all have them sovereignly assigned, but we should have this expectation. You need all three, because if you don't have all three, the evangelism process becomes weak or it falls over or doesn't happen. We need to keep expecting miracles. We need to be intentional about our hospitality and mercy, but don't just stop with miracles or mercy. Let, let me put it like this. Imagine today, imagine right now today, 
Every single person who's sick in the world suddenly was healed. Every hospital shut down. We would be like, we wouldn't even know what to do. Can you imagine that every person in poverty, today it ended, it was done. Or can you imagine that every single war suddenly just stopped? The world would be a much better place, but it still would be going to hell. Did you just catch what I said? See, this, this is so important. Those things, we have to continue to fight against all of those things and bring the kingdom of God. But remember, you have to preach the gospel. Christian justice, acts of hospitality and mercy, miracles are the door opening events and the evidence of the gospel. They are not the gospel though. They're the door opening event. For If you put your trust in those things, you're lost. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Remember what he says, 1 Thessalonians. This is the gospel. You turn to God from idols. You serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven who raised, God raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. He rescues us from the coming wrath. So here's all I'm saying. Hey, church, as we're still working this out, I just want to say, we need to keep praying as a church Lord, more miracles, more deliverances, more healing, more tongues, more interpretation. At the same time, more mercy, more hospitality, more evangelism, more teaching. The point is we need all of the Spirit's work in preaching word and deed. Miraculous, all of it. Because this is how you lead a multicultural community to faith. There are three doors. The word, (laughs) right? The power and the love. But they all have to meet in the gospel of Jesus. More, Lord, not less. That's what we should pray. Uh, Last thing. Some of you who are listening to me speak, maybe one of you, maybe more, you actually are bar Jesus in the story. Let me ask you this question. Are you resisting God through your acts, through your thoughts, through your life? Are you resisting those who actually God has given to you? Parents, pastors, leaders, others? Are you trying to sway other people from Jesus? publicly, online, privately, in your heart, secretly? God is coming to you at this moment and gives you a chance to turn and find hope, friendship, forgiveness, pure power, pure love, actually a better worldview. There's always love. I love this old, old, old Anglican prayer from the litany. Uh, Remember not, Lord, our offenses of our forefathers. Neither take thou vengeance on our sins. Spare us, good Lord, spare thy people whom thou hast redeemed with thy, home, with thy most precious blood and be not angry with us forever. This moment, literally as I'm preaching to you, is given to you so you will not be lost forever. Jesus is speaking to you. I'm just a guy, but he's talking. He's like, come be Paul. Be like Sergius Paulus. Give up false power. Give up occultic power. Give up self-trust. Give up your religious understanding. Give up your trust in politics or your sexual ability or, pro- or, or, your, or your power or your position or your family connections. You don't have to lose your intellect to become a Christian, but humble it under the one that gave it to you in the first place. You think you're spiritually strong? Who got blinded in the end? You want real power? Meet Jesus. Repent, walk in humility. Then you will experience not just power, but you will experience power rooted in love. You might even be in a job and the job is wicked or crooked. And the only reason why you've not given your life to Jesus is because it will cost you your position or your job or your reputation with family. And Jesus says, your job is not worth hell. 
Your job is not worth eternal separation. Your job is, is not worth not knowing love and forgiveness. God says to someone or some of you right now, I will provide, I will sustain. Trust me, temporary blindness or loss is worth it. Eternal life is worth it. Eternal loss is not. These passages are so important because they don't downplay experience, but they also put it in its right place. So maybe we can pray as we end this message like this. One, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit in great power across Sanctus Church and also every other church that's listening. We pray more miraculous, more healings, more dreams, more visions, more deli- like do the unnatural, all, more hospitality, more love, more mercy, more justice. But as that takes place, would every single one of these door opening events not be confused or lost? When that happens, would you have someone there to proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? We pray for a boldness in our church through gifts and also a boldness in proclaiming the gospel. And we pray we'd see this story of Sergius Paulus happen again and again. And for others right now that are bar Jesus, go confront them, Lord. Go confront them for their own sake and their own eternity. And if that's you, you might even want to say right now as I end, just say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me for resisting you. Change my life. Lord, our church has been strategically planted by you in a city or cities just like this. So Lord, may Acts 13 and 14 actually happen among us, we pray. Restore again uh, the faith that so many of us have lost in the last few years. Work this out in a new way, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And we all said, all right, amen. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Sanctus Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when other episodes releases. I hope you were encouraged by what you heard today. God bless and have a great week.